Friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Amos chapters 3 and 4. Amos chapters 3 and 4. And in your pew Bible, it is found on page 765. In case you're looking for it. Amos chapters 3 and 4. Now, I won't be able to walk through this passage line by line. And I would encourage you as we walk through the book of Amos, that you would read it in preparation of our time together. So 3 and 4 this week, and at the bottom of the weekly, just in case you're wondering, at the bottom of the weekly, it says the passages that we are going to be looking at together, and that's to be able to help you prepare your own hearts uh, for our time of worship together. So you can be reading it and asking God to do a work in your heart and so that when we get together, we would be able to encourage each other from this book together. And so we are going to be looking at it, and I'll be referencing uh, these two chapters of chapters 3 and 4, and then I'll be referencing the verses. And if you're new to the Bible, when I say verse such and such, verse 2, for example, that's the little number in there. And some of you may be saying, Matt, we, we know that. Well, some don't. And so for those of you that aren't familiar with the Bible, that is a reference and some handles to be able to navigate the Bible together. So chapter 3 is the big number, and the small numbers are the verses that I'll be referring to. And so as we think about Amos chapters 3 and 4, can't help but think of a time that you may have gone to a supermarket, or to the mall, or anywhere out in public for that matter, And you see some kids acting up in aisle five. And maybe your tendency is to be like, where are their parents? And you just roll your eyes and you try to avoid aisle five for a season because you know it's going to be wrecked. And so you don't say anything, right? Because that would not be a good thing to go up to somebody else's kid and say, hey, don't touch the pickles. You're going to break something, right? But if your kid is acting up in aisle five, what do you do? Well, you very calmly and gently, I'm sure all of us do this, and say, now honey, we don't do that in aisle five. We don't touch the pickles. We don't try to arrange anything. It's okay, right? I'm sure we all do that very calmly and gently. Because why? They are our children. And because they're our children, we care about what they're doing. It's also true in any organization that you go to that those who are bonded together have committed to one another for a specific cause and a specific purpose to be able to put forward a product or something like that. And and if somebody's not fully engaged in the work in the company, then they can drag it back. In fact, one of the largest and most successful hedge funds uh, called Bridgewater Uh, founded by a guy named Ray Dalio, and I encourage you to read his book called Principles, says that his organization, his family, as it were, isn't for everyone because they are committed to two principles at his company. The two principles that they are utterly committed to are radical truth and radical transparency. And he says, most people don't want that in their lives, and so therefore, they don't stay around too long in Bridgewater. Because they're not committed to radical truth and radical transparency. Because a lot of times, radical truth and radical transparency doesn't feel good. And most times, people just want to show up to work and say, I didn't really sign up for this. I didn't sign up for you to tell me that I'm not doing my job really well. I... I just kind of want to go over here and play solitaire, if that's a thing that people do anymore. I guess they're on Facebook now, uh, on their computers, in their cubicles. 
But the problem is, and that we see in Amos chapters 3 and 4, is that God is utterly committed to truth and transparency. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like radical truth and radical transparency. We like it, the idea of it, but then when it comes to look at you and me in the face and says, no, 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 you're not all that you think that you're cracked up to be, we don't like it. We say, well, that's, that's for this person over here. No, 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 no. As I said in the weekly this week, this book is for you and it's for me. It's for anybody that goes to church. It's for anybody that says, hey, I believe in God, I'm a Christ follower, then this book is for you. Amos won't let you just say, yeah, go get them, God. Go get the people who don't believe in you. As we looked at last week, what does God do, right? He starts in all these different nations and then He comes right after His very people. He says, no, 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 I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. And so God looks at you this morning through the prophet Amos and He says, I'm talking about you. Don't presume upon the kindness of God. Don't presume that everybody else needs to hear this and I'm just going to think, hmm, I'll wait till we get into a passage like Romans or a passage like Matthew. But No, no, Amos is for me. Amos is for you. Amos is for everybody who is religious. Who believes in God. Who tithes. Who gives mint and cumin. Who does everything as they're supposed to. And yet as we see in Amos, our hearts can be far from God if we put our confidence in the accoutrements or the characteristics or the actions of being a follower of God and not having our heart affected. See, Amos told God's people last week that they better not get too comfortable and relaxed as God meets out His judgment on all the nations. Because they had become like the surrounding nations. That's the whole point of the first couple chapters. Like, I'm talking about all these countries, but I'm talking about you. You look like and you sound like everybody else. And you are not a distinct people. You are not a holy people set apart as my own possession. Therefore, I'm coming after you to bring you radical truth and radical transparency in your lives. And if you're not ready for that this morning then maybe you don't want to hear this as I don't want to preach it because I am just as guilty of these things as you are, my friends. That the religious ought to hear these words. We ought to be careful that we don't think this is for someone else. So let's look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord is reminding them of their salvation from slavery. Remember, reminding them, and this is not even the same generation, right? He's saying, remember your forefathers. But He's saying, I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Sure, that was generations ago, but no, 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 I brought you out of slavery and I want you to hear these words. And so perhaps you have grown accustomed to hearing the Bible and hearing preaching and singing songs. And the Lord would say to you that if you're bored in your faith this morning, as sometimes God's people are prone to, 
If you're feeling distant from God, as God's people often are prone to, I would encourage you to spend some time this week reflecting on what God has done in your life. To remind yourself that God has, yes, even you, pulled you out of slavery in Egypt. He's pulled you out of slavery so that you aren't like you used to be. And maybe you're saying, well, Matt, I, always, I grew up in a Christian home. Well, praise God, but consider that that is God's very instrument to have redeemed you and to be thankful for those things, to be able to have learned the things of God from a very early age. And maybe you do have a story of, man, I was, a, I was just running after the things of the world and God plucked me out. I wasn't searching for God. And maybe your story is like mine, that you grew up going to church and around the church and you found a lot of pride in the fact that you did the things that you were supposed to do, and yet God opened up your eyes to show you that that's not enough. He demands perfection and only in His Son Jesus can we find that perfection and only by faith in Him. And so we can't put our confidence in those things. And the Lord would say, remember who you were and remember that you don't have any hope outside of My redeeming you from slavery. And then we get to verse 2. The Lord continues and He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Somebody messaged me this morning. He's like, what is, why, why are you calling your sermon, I know you, therefore I punish you? It's very strange. Well, it all goes back to, if you're in the family of God, and this is what the author of Hebrews picks up on, if you are of the family of God, the Lord lovingly corrects you and puts you on a path. It's not like, what you're thinking of, you, know, you better toe the line because you're going to get swatted, right? That's not the way that God's dealing with us. But He looks at you and He says, you're not an orphan. You have a Father. And because you have a Father who loves you, He's not going to let you do that anymore. This verse 2 should remind us of Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where he says, you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples, all the families who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord loves you not because you are more righteous than your neighbor. He loves you because He loves you. Did you see the grounding for that? He chose you. He pulled you out of all the other families of the earth so that you might be His treasured possession. And He's not going to let His treasured possession look and sound and smell like everything else because He wants your life to reflect the life of God into a world that desperately needs hope. That desperately needs to know its Maker. And we've oftentimes just settled for, just tell me what I need to do. The Lord doesn't want you to just give you a list of rules and regulations. He wants to give you a life that is much bigger than that. So, so when someone else's kid acts up in the store, 
You don't put you don't put them in time out and you don't take away their dessert. You don't punish them, right? Because they're not your child. But the Lord does that for us. Because he loves us. Because he knows us, therefore he punishes us. To let a child continue on their way without correction is the most unloving thing a parent can do. To let a child do as they please is the most unloving thing that you and I can do as parents. Because the bumps and bruises and scars that you and I have experienced as parents are meant to teach our children so that they don't have to experience those same things. So children, when you get frustrated, when your parents say, when I was a kid, don't let that bother you. That, that's a way of them loving you. And maybe they did go uphill both ways in the snow. Maybe not, maybe not in South Carolina, but maybe they experienced some kind of difficulties that they want to share with you. That's a good thing. It's not because we're just trying to control you. Because we love you. And it's the same way with God. That God loves you, Christian. Because He loves you, He's not going to just let you live your life like the world. Like everybody else. It's gracious for Him to punish you. And so we're going to look at four different aspects in these two chapters together very briefly. So don't freak out when I say four instead of three or two or one. We're going to look at four brief points in these two chapters together that God punishes us because He loves us. That's the main point of our passage together. And so first of all, God's punishment is never a surprise or a secret. God's punishment is never a surprise or a secret. And we see that in these first few verses in verses 3-6. through six. I'm just going to read verse 3. It says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The answer is no. And so what is God doing there? He's going back to their covenantal relationship. And they ought to have in their minds, back in Deuteronomy where they're standing on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and they're saying the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And then they say after Moses dies, they tell Joshua, they say, everything that Moses commanded we will do. They are agreeing with God that they will walk with God. And so God is saying, hey, you and I agreed to this. And I lovingly told you what would happen if you don't follow my commands. And because I love you, I am making good on my promises to help you walk in the way of God. That's what this passage, do two walk together? No, they don't. They agree to walk together, and Israel had agreed to walk with God. And it is right and it is good for God to say, hey, we agreed to this. This is not anything new. This should not be a surprise. And that's how the rest of these few verses go, is that the Lord is saying, it shouldn't be a surprise that you are getting punished. We talked about this from the very beginning when you were on the banks of the Jordan River going into the promised land and you said, yes, sounds good, we'll do that. So it's not a surprise, nor is it a secret. Look at verse 7. For the Lord does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The Lord graciously sends prophets to Israel just as He sends the prophet Amos to you and me this morning graciously, and he says, this is not a secret. I am doing this because I love you. I'm graciously revealing to you what I'm going to do. So while Assyria did come to destroy Israel in 722, as we looked at last week, Assyria did come in 722, right? 
to destroy them. Israel had the opportunity to repent time and again. Because you and I have the ability to repent day after day, to seek His face. And that this is the beautiful thing. I was reading in my uh, time in God's Word this past week, and that in 2 Kings chapter 19, when, Hez- when Assyria is knocking on the door of Israel, and Hezekiah says, Lord, have mercy on us, even at that point, God says, I will have mercy on you. Assyria is right here, but I will have mercy on you, Hezekiah, because you sought my face. So the Lord says, if you will seek my face, if you will repent of your sin and you'll put your faith in me, even though your enemy is at your doorstep seeking to devour you, I'll save you. I'll redeem you. The Lord is patient and kind to us. He's not surprising us. He's not trying to have this moment where He's like, ah, I got you. I'm just waiting on you to mess up. Now I got you. No, no, no. That's not how He plays the game. The punishment's not a secret. It's not a surprise. Therefore, it must be proclaimed. Look at verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. So what is to be proclaimed? Well, they're supposed to proclaim verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. See, God is never in the business of just delighting in destroying His people. He is repetitively saying, stop, return to Me, come to Me, have life. Don't settle for that. Maybe this week you found that there were things that were promising you life and happiness. The Lord says, Return to Me and be saved. Look to Me and be saved even this morning. The Lord is not trying to get you. The Lord is patient with you. Loves you. And says, stop. For your own good, stop. And turn to Me and be saved. But then secondly, God's punishment is not secret or a surprise God's punishment, number two, is reasonable. God's punishment is reasonable. Now, I said it somewhat tongue-in-cheek that when we're in the grocery store, I very rarely calmly and rationally say to my children, uh, just settle down. I usually do it in a very nasty way, if we're honest. And maybe you do too. Maybe uh, we're in good company together that we oftentimes punish our children because we're embarrassed or because we're inconvenienced. That's not the case with God and His children. He's not embarrassed by you. He's not inconvenienced by you. He's exceedingly patient with you. And like a lawyer enters the courtroom when asked by his child why, God gives two reasons under this reasonable, right? God gives two reasons why He's punishing Israel. The first one is because of their idolatry. Look at verse 14 in chapter 3. That on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. They had erected these, these altars in Bethel and Gilgal up in the north, northern tribes, so that people didn't have to go down to Jerusalem. There was a political reason for that. These 
Altars were erected so that God's people could essentially make God in their own image. And later on, as we see in the history of Israel, there were golden calves who were erected in Bethel and Gilgal that they worshipped, saying, Behold your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar because it's always true that we seek to find our solace and our confidence in our ability to make God in our image. To say, I don't like the way that God does that, and therefore I'm going to twist it a little bit so that God does things the way I want Him to do it. But the Lord says, I'm not like that. I'm not like a golden calf where you can shape and fashion me how you want me to be. You see this idolatry again in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes three days. Every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for... So you love to do, O people of Israel. He's saying that even your religious ceremonies are idol worship. And the call to us this morning, church, is to beware of religious language and actions that are devoid of faith. It's very easy to have all of those outward signs as we talked about a moment ago. And that's what Israel was was guilty of. They said, well, God, look, we're, we're sacrificing. We're doing Thanksgiving offerings. We're sacrificing every morning. He says, no, 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 those are transgressions. Those are transgressions because you are not doing it from faith. You are doing it because you think that you can appease me with your sacrifices. The Lord says, I am not an idol. So we need to beware of religious language. We need to beware of religious actions that are devoid of faith. So the question then is, to what are you sacrificing this morning? What do you give your time to? Providing the right opportunities for our children when what they really need is to sit around the table and see mom and dad pray together. Maybe... Working night and day to be thought of better by your boss when you're struggling to get up in the morning to just even pray. Reading article after article of the latest recruitment class for your favorite football team when reading God's Word is a pain and you just don't like, feel like it. It's not for lack of time. For lack of desire. And so what we do is we do every week, we confess our sins, and, and that's where we find our, our solace, is that we confess our sins and say, Lord, I really don't want to read the Bible this morning. Lord, change my heart so that I want that more than I want to know what the latest recruitment class did, or what my boss thinks of me. Because if we're honest, a lot of times we just get bored with spiritual things. Maybe you do. I know I do sometimes. Where it's like, I just don't really feel like reading the Bible. It's not that exciting anymore. My friend, just say that. God's not surprised. He knows that. And there's great joy and openness and transparency that can happen if we say, Lord, I don't feel like it this morning. 
Created me a clean heart. Created me a new heart so that I might love you more than that. And so the Lord gives a second reason. He talks about the idolatry. And I think this really is the undergirding reason for that idolatry that Israel is experiencing. is because they are worldly. They reflect the values of the world more than the heavenly. This is a strong word for the church in America today. Look at verse 15. Sandwiched in between these idolatrous reasons is verse 15. He says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. They had great possessions. They had summer houses, winter houses, ivory houses. They had all these great things. And the Lord says, I will strike them down because you care more about your home renovation project than you care about me. I can't, I'll never forget one of the moments that I thought, it was probably time to start a church, among many reasons, is I was standing in a foyer of a church that we were visiting, and I was just listening to the conversations that were going around, and most of the conversations, I would say 99% of the conversations were about what renovation project they were doing at their house, and I did not hear the name Jesus on anybody's mouth. They were talking about, yeah, we're going to have this some contractor do this and this. You know, we're going to add on. We're going to refurbish. We're going to do a new bathroom. Now, there's nothing wrong with refinishing your house. That's not what I'm saying. But if the theme and the tenor of our conversations before and after our service have more to do with our summer and winter houses, then we've got a problem. We ought to be a church that talks a lot about Jesus. That talks a lot about our salvation from slavery that says how is it going in fact this would be a great practice for us as a church i sent a sent a, a video several weeks ago a great practice for our church would be simply to say how is your relationship with god going how is your reading of the bible going this week and for us to be transparent and honest and say ah it's not really that great well what can i do to help you how can i encourage you in that as opposed to going to the default of our culture the default of our culture is to talk about Clemson football. The default of our culture is to talk about anything other than Jesus, even in the church. And that's what God's saying to Israel. is like, you sound a whole lot like the nations, as opposed to a people who have been redeemed from the house of slavery. So what is the tenor of your conversation? What is the theme of your conversation? I pray that our conversations would be a lot about Jesus and little about our homes, unless our homes are being used to be hospitable places for people to come and hear about Jesus. That's what I'm longing for for our church, is that we would be a church who is welcoming, who talks so much about Jesus and is flavored and smells like grace as opposed to what the world values. Don't hear me wrong. Money is not bad. It is the greed. It is the love of money that is the problem. Money can be used 
to bless other people. But if it is to acquire more, to build bigger barns and bigger houses and marble floors and marble walls and marble ceilings, then there's a problem. It's a matter of degree. Right? It's a good thing that the Lord blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. It's the desire to simply spend it on ourselves as the problem. And we see this in, in uh, chapter 4, look at verse 1. He says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He's, see, but cows of Bashan were these fat, sleek animals that they were known for. And Bashan became known for their opulence and how wealthy they were. And so the Lord says, no, 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 you're, you're nothing more than an animal. You're acting like animals because all you're concerned about is feeding yourselves. Why? Continue reading in verse 1. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. All they were concerned about was their comfort. That's all they cared about. So that the, the weak, the poor, the needy, they were all a means to the end of them just getting another drink, of them being able to relax and take it easy. The weak are being crushed because they are not seen as equals to them. They are merely people to do the work that they didn't want to do. And so the Lord looks at His people and says, don't be like other people. Don't think that you're better than those who are poor and needy. Come alongside them. Don't use them for your own benefit. So the Lord's punishment is reasonable. It's not crazy. It's reasonable. Thirdly, God's punishments are patient. God's punishments are patient. I've already alluded to this before, but in our text we see this pretty prevalently. And I did say punishments, plural, because the Lord is patient in meeting out punishments to His people. It's not like all of a sudden it's like, Nothing, nothing, nothing. Boom, you're all, you're all gone. No, he, he gently and intentionally comes to His people and says, I'm trying to get through to you. Listen. See that there's a problem. You see this in verse 6, right? He brings famine. I gave you cleanness of, cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Cleanness of teeth means that they just didn't have anything to eat. Not that they had really good uh, dental hygiene. And then he sends drought in verse 7. He sends pestilence in verse 9. He sends military destruction from Egypt in verse 10. And then he destroyed a few as an example of what was to come in verse 11. Five times the Lord says, I am trying to get through to you the pain and the suffering that you're experiencing, the punishments that you're experiencing in your life are because I love you. And five times the Lord says, yet you did not return to me. 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 My friend, if your life stinks right now, maybe the Lord is trying to get through to you and say, return to me. Yes, there are folks that are suffering at the hands of other people and the Lord says, will you turn to me even in that? Will you look to me even in that difficulty that's not your fault?
All these punishments were serving as a slap on the wrist so that they wouldn't be utterly destroyed. God graciously sends difficulties our way as we heard from the Apostle Paul, right? We heard from him saying, the Lord puts this thorn, He put a thorn in His side so that He would not boast, so that He would not be proud. And the Lord loves you too much to let you be conceited this morning. And then fourthly, fourthly, in light of these punishments, we have a response. We can listen to this and we can become hard-hearted like Israel did, or we can hear this and say, okay, what, what do I need to do? The Lord says, therefore, return to Me. He says, return to Me. That's what needs to happen. The Lord says, all of these punishments are so that you would return to Me. Destruction is coming, but do you notice that there are glimmers of hope that are embedded in these two chapters? There are little glimmers of hope, and there are glimmers of hope even in the difficulties in your life this morning. Destruction is coming for God's people in mass, but that doesn't mean that he has that it has to be everybody. Look back at chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12, Thus says the Lord, even though an adversary will surround you, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. A remnant will be rescued. Just because all of Israel will be swept aside, that doesn't mean that all Israel will be swept aside. A remnant will be saved. It may be a piece of an ear, but the Lord looks at that and says, I can work with that. The Lord looks at that piece of a couch and says, there's a place to sit here still. All of that may be burned up, but the Lord says, I can work with that. I can work with that difficulty. And the same thing this morning, if you're like, the only thing I can do this morning, Matt, is I can just say, Lord, help. And the Lord looks at you and says, I can work with that. If you will call out to Him, if you can say, I don't want to be swept aside with those who don't believe. The Lord says, I can work with that. You don't have to be swept aside like the rest of God's people. Look again. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Verse 12. He says, Therefore, Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Meeting God can either be frightening or it can be the most satisfying thing in your life. It all has to do with your posture towards God. If God is nothing more than a person who wants to make your life a living hell on earth, then it's a frightening thing. But if He's the one for whom your soul longs, it's a satisfying thing. That even if difficulties come in your life and you say, hey, who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing I desire on the earth beside you. If that's your prayer, if that's your cry this morning, and the Lord says, prepare to meet Him. Prepare to meet your God. And that is a life-giving thing? Or it is the scariest thing? 
Look at verse 13. For behold, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is His thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is His name. That God knows the secret things of your heart and of your mind could be scary. Or it could be comforting. The remedy we see this morning in chapter 4 is to meditate on the grandeur and the beauty and the majesty of God. The difficulties you're experiencing this morning can be remedied. Listen to this. The difficulties you're experiencing this morning can be remedied by getting outside of those difficulties and focusing on the vastness of God. The intimacy of God. His love for you. And not letting the circumstances and the difficulties crowd out the beauty of that God creates the wind. He forms the mountain. He treads in the darkness with you. The one who treads on the Himalayas, for whom Mount Everest is his footstool, he offers to go on a walk with you this morning, my friend. The greatest being comes to you this morning and says, I will listen to you. I'm talking to you. I love you. Will you listen this morning? Remember how I mentioned Ray Dalio's company's commitment to radical truth and radical transparency? On our bad days, we don't really like that, do we? But maybe on this day, the Lord could break through with radical truth and radical transparency this morning to show you that things are not as they ought to be. But He can do something about it. The truth is that there's a problem. We have settled for small pleasures as Israel had settled for small pleasures that end on ourselves. That revolve around me. When the Lord says never-ending and overflowing joy are found outside of us. We have to get our vision outside of how things affect us and see our role in this larger story. That's the way out. And we're going to look at that next week in our next chapter together. That the way out of the difficulty is to press into Him. It's to see that your story is part of a larger story. That God's story of redemption, of how He is reconciling all things to Himself, that you are a player in that. The transparency part is letting others help you. You're not going to get it right on your own. You can't study enough. You can't read enough to be able to get your sin under control. You need other people to speak into your life. That's where the radical transparency that Amos says, if you'll listen, you can hear it and you can see it. See, the church hasn't done a great job of working out our salvation together. We think that we need to get our stuff together and then we can talk. We have settled for formulaic faith rather than transparent trust in God. So the Lord says this morning, are you going to hear these words of difficult words and say, yes, I have given into idolatry 
and I've given into worldliness. Lord, have mercy on me. See, the real question is, is when we have pain introduced into our lives, are we going to press into the Lord? Are we going to press into Him? Are we going to see pain and suffering in our lives? And are we going to see this imminent destruction that comes for those who don't call out to God? Are we going to call out to Him? Are we going to learn from Israel's mistakes? My prayer is, is that as a church, we will find our joy in Him and that we will turn to Him. We will return to Him, both in reading His Word, being changed by His Word in a real way, saying, this Word is for me. That in, we will give ourselves to prayer, seeking the face of God together, and not just an idea of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that You have leveled truth, radical truth and radical transparency as You have peeled back the layers of our lives. And You show us that there is comfort, and there is solace in You. That the very One who wounds us is the One who will heal us. And so, Father, for the myriad of needs that are, there are this morning, for those who are suffering and struggling this morning, I pray for grace. I pray for help that You would reveal Yourself to that one in a renewed way. For those that are proud and conceited, Father, I pray that You would bring a thorn that You would humble us as a people, that we would find our joy only in You and not in the accumulation of things, but in the possession of God. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.